So this is going to be now how I talk to all of you. I'm going to say all y'all. All y'all. Several times. Several times. I did, uh, actually did Will's wedding. And we're up on the beach. And I, I, she told me not to wear, we're going to like go barefoot or wear sandals. And I go, okay, so I show up in a suit wearing sandals. I walk in, he's got like these really nice shoes on. And I'm like, seriously? Seriously? So he took them off and we were barefoot, so we're good. Welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. Uh, we would encourage you to pick them up and actually read them. Because the questions on the back sometimes don't go with some of my message. They go with what's written in... It's like childproof. What's written in the middle. Like last week, there's a question that started off with, and I can't tell you how many comments I got. What's up with this question? It doesn't go with what you talked about, but it went with what you read. I know there's no pictures, but uh, if you read it... If you're new, you're like, what in the world's going on? I don't like this guy. Anyway, so read them. The questions go with that. If you come across anything during the book of Genesis that you have a question about, you can, well, for this week, you can scan this little QR code in the bottom. If you have a smartphone with a QR reader, and you can go to it, it'll take you to a site that will actually let you ask us a question. You can always go to our website and uh, submit any questions. On our Genesis page on our website, we actually have a Q&A section as well. So questions that have been asked previously, you can go. There's also a whole book list of books you can read, you know. All the books that you never wanted to read, but you feel smart if you put them in your book list. So, you know, cool like that. Uh, so, uh, as, as he said, our baptisms are in two weeks. And I don't know, I'm saying this every service because somebody at the last one uh, bought, brought this um, chicken tortilla soup. And they left it in my fridge. And so it never made it out. And so after everybody left, we kind of had the little after party. And uh, it was awesome because I heated this stuff up, and it was so thick I could put chips in it, just clog my arteries. It was just amazing, amazing stuff. So if that was you, bring some again. <laughs> Stick it in my fridge again, or tell me where you got it, because it was so good. Not that I'm selfish about that stuff or anything, but just saying that. <laughs> and again, the time changes next week. Don't forget. I, see, we're talking about the fall now. We're in Genesis week 8, and we're talking about, like, you know, it's sin and evil and stuff. It makes perfect sense to have the time change right in the middle of it. Because it's not the good one where we get an extra hour of sleep. It's the bad one where we lose an hour. I told all the people at 8.15, you guys better be here next week. Because if i got to get out of bed to this, I'm taking a picture. I'm coming after all of you. Cause... Well, you're a, bit, a little better crowd than we started with earlier today. So I just down the union of God's word. This is Romans chapter 6, verse 23. And it says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we as a people would understand the great lengths that you went through to save us and that wouldn't give us big heads but would make us very humble people, that we would live to bring you glory and honor because our lives have been changed because of what you have done in them. Amen. Have a seat. So this is week eight of the book of Genesis. What we've seen so far is that God creates Everything creates everything good. In the middle of this creation, he puts man. And today you see he put man in the middle of something and we just screw it all up. So today we cover sin and death and what that actually means. If you have a Bible, you can open to Genesis chapter 3. It's going to be our text. It's going to take a little bit to get there. So go with me and don't be offended with half the stuff you hear. Unless you shouldn't be offended, then 
be offended. Uh, there's a complete disparity in our world today when it comes to this idea of what death is. Some people gravitate towards it. They think, oh, it's going to hold a greater truth. I've got to figure out all about that. A lot of these kids that gravitate toward it hang out at the mall, maybe the backside of a high school, face painted, clothes dark, nails black. Uh, they have maybe something happened to them in their lives where this is the thing they gravitate towards, a callousness that happened to them somewhere. Uh, they, they have this morbid curiosity that kind of says something better could be on the other side, but I really don't got enough guts to go find out what's on the other side, so I'll just dress like death. Uh, and, then, and every once in a while, one of them actually does go to find out what's on the other side, but they don't come back to tell everybody else what was on the other side because they can't, and it's just kind of... Okay. On the other side of the issue, the majority side, our major culture's position of this, is an entire culture we live in that's dedicated itself and all of its resources in the pursuit to deny the existence of death. We turn a blind eye to decay. We try to live as if age is never a factor. You see these people on television who have been stretched and stapled and tucked and cut so many times they don't even really look human. Um, I, I was watching an interview a couple weeks ago. Joan Rivers was on it. And I'm like... Because if if you're on the video podcast, zoom in on that right right there. Seriously, because I looked at it and I was like, she didn't even look human. She's like trying to smile. I'm like, it looks like the Joker. (laughs) Now they're making fun of Joan Rivers. Well, maybe I am, whatever. Uh, You know, this is all an effort to try and keep the appearance of youth. I mean, our culture seeks to be young so that it despises anything that deals with age. If you walk by a magazine rack, a lot of editors and photographers, what they'll do is they'll take younger women, they'll dress them up like older women, and take photos of that as if that is the ideal. It is not something that anybody can live up to. See, we sell youth claiming it's life in an attempt to avoid thinking about death. Now, I enjoy doing weddings way more than I enjoy doing funerals. You screw up at a wedding, it's okay. Because you go to the reception, everybody's happy and wonderful, you get total redemption. You mess up at a funeral, it's just over. Uh, take my word for it, all right? A couple years ago, uh, I go to a funeral that I was attending. I was not actually presiding over it. Uh, I'm relatively unknown to most of the people there. I actually enjoy it when those kind of things happen. Not the death, obviously, but going to a thing that I don't have to officiate the event. Because by not being in charge, I get to sit back and look at everybody and see what everybody's doing. I get to be a spectator, part of the audience, which I know isn't the point of a funeral. Don't tell me that. I know it. All right. It's not. But I do like to gauge people's reaction. Uh, At this funeral, the funeral directors were dressed in three-piece suits that had the appearance of being purchased in the early 80s, worn for five days a week for 30 years, never a adjusted for any weight gain at all. It just, it's, it's what happens. It's called entropy. You get older and it just kind of happens. Uh, the funeral hall, you know, just is a whole, unco- if you've ever been to a funeral hall, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's just very uncomfortable, the whole thing. Wood paneled walls. They always remind me of my wife's chain smoking uncle's house, that whole thing. Uh, you, we sat in the pews. The, the pews are narrow. They got this faded pink fabric. We're all shoved really close together. Springs feel like they're poking through. There's not a whole lot of, maybe they don't want you there very long. I don't know, but it feels like they're poking through and not much padding in the middle of it. And then on all the walls, there's these plasma screen TVs. And what are they showing? Running water, bunnies, and deer. And I'm like, this is just so awkward. I, I can't believe this. So, and at this funeral that I'm at, you know, family's crying. They're questioning, why would God take, you know, our mother, grandmother, aunt, friend away so unexpectedly? And they ask these questions, even though this woman who died was a few hundred pounds overweight. She was in and out of the hospital every other month. She couldn't get around on her own two feet. And it amazes me how we always want to question and blame God for all the bad in our lives and we never give him any credit for the good things that come into our lives. In reality, the scripture teaches all the bad is us and all the good is God. 
Today, funerals are a very morbid place. There's no celebration around death, uh, you know, which we shouldn't actually celebrate death. This is a bad thing. But what, when I die, I have, I have tried to con a few people into this at this point. I want someone to get up at my funeral who doesn't know how to play a bugle and try and play taps. That's what I want. So everybody's just like, I don't know if I'm supposed to laugh or what. I'll just cry and look really... You know, funeral homes actually employ people to paint deceased so they don't actually look so dead. Everyone's a little bit uncomfortable at funerals because we have something in us which fears this idea of death. We feel the overwhelming pressure to reassure each other at funerals. Oh, there really is hope. We smile and bow our heads. We dress a little nicer than we normally do in our day-to-day activities. P.A. Varghese writes about our choice of black in today's funeral attire. He says, The black funeral dress was originally worn as a ploy to escape the evil spirits which were hovering during such an occasion. In some black African nations, people paint themselves white. Their black mean the accepted shade, while white will keep the spirits away. See, it kind of seems that no matter what country you're in, what religious background, skin color, status in life, there's something always disquieting about death. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.26 that the last enemy to be destroyed is death so this funeral that i'm at them telling you about a deceased woman's pastor she gets up he gets up to the pulpit starts to say a few words of welcome expresses some condolence to the people then recites his most fond memories of the deceased he tells about her parenting skills how they were exemplary and you should all model them as a parent he speaks about her commitment to christ and that how he wished everyone in his church was as committed as she was and as steadfast as she was he extols her virtues as a neighbor and that we should all be neighbors like she was i mean, really in the end from what the pastor is telling the room this deceased was like Mother Teresa with a side order of Jesus mixed in in the side, all coming together. Now, there is a standard I have set for myself when I do a funeral. I'm just telling you this in case you die and say, I want him to do it. Okay, I will not lie at a funeral. I will just will not lie. Don't ask. I will not say a person was a Christian if they were not. I will not say they were a wonderful father or mother if they never were. I won't tell people that St. Peter's waiting at the pearly gates for so-and-so to arrive if they never wanted to live for God in the first place. Now, don't freak out. I will also not tell everybody all the evil you did while you were alive. I won't be like, oh, they were terrible. I won't say anything like that. What I typically do when I do a funeral is I talk about the value of life, how we don't know the day of our death, and we need Jesus to experience true life. This is much like the gospel does. We need Jesus. And it always makes me wonder why everyone is so afraid to speak the truth at a funeral about those who have died. I mean, is it really going to hurt their feelings at this point for other people to know that maybe they weren't that pleasant all the time? Do we say nice things for the family, thinking they have all people don't really know what this person was really like i mean do we say nice things for ourselves because maybe we harbor something in our hearts against this person and we never told them so we just feel guilty do we say nice things so maybe if we die prematurely then someone else will come along and say nice things about us at our funeral you know because we might not deserve it but they might just say it so it'll be okay I think one of the real reasons that we always say nice things at funerals is honesty is very hard. I think people are dead, and if we didn't have the courage to speak the truth to somebody while they were alive, then what use is it to speak it after they're gone? See, the point is in this that we will all be dead at some point. This fleshly body is going to go away. It's never pretty. All the life that you hope for at some point is done in that regard. Even when our souls go on into eternity and live forever, you never get back the life that you squandered away. And that's the biggest thing, what death is and what death is not. Death is not the stopping of our hearts. Death is not the blood in our veins turning from red to blue. Death is not the synapses in our brain no longer firing you know, impulses to our bodies. It's really easy to define what death is not. But what is death? That's also actually easy to define. Death is simply separation. Families are separated from those they love. That's why loss is so profound and unspeakable. The deceased are separated from the ability to live for Christ in their lives, which is why the moment of now is so important. Death is separation. It's really all that it is. It is separation from life. 
Now, Genesis 3 is where we see all this begin. Last week, I told you about two trees. The first tree is called the tree of life. It tells you that mankind was created mortal, but he was able to be immortal by trusting in the provision of God. We stayed alive through faithful obedience to who he is. And the point, God is the living God. When we separate ourselves from the living God, we separate ourselves from our source of life. The second tree is a tree of knowledge of good and evil. This tree is about innocence and obedience. Innocence and obedience. See, Adam and Eve know right from wrong. You know this because God gave them this command not to eat from this tree. If he gave them this command, they didn't know right from wrong, they wouldn't have understood the command. In Genesis 2.17, he says, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There's that word. Genesis 3 then revolves around this tree. In Genesis, we are told that God created all things good. Good is the Hebrew word tov. God created all things good. This means God determines those things that are good, those things that are beneficial. He imparts that knowledge and wisdom to the man he creates. God fashions this man. He builds this man with his hands. He makes this man in his image. He breathes his very own breath into this man to make him a living creature. He then instructs the man on what is tov, what is good, what is right, and places this man in the garden. When he places man in the garden, what God does is separates things for the man he separates light and darkness he separates truth and lies he separates what constitute life and and community and connection and relationship and death and you must also see that though the man is part of creation he is not actually part of the garden he is placed over it to steward it and take care of it he was fashioned and placed within the garden to nurture and take care of it and its beauty and that is also tov that is also good And so the man lives in the garden by the grace and tove, the goodness of God. And the man is free to do anything in the garden except dishonor God. So man's given this command, exercise self-restraint. You know, don't dishonor and sin against God. Do what is the good. Flee from what is not the good. Again, the whole idea is that God only knows what is tove, and man can do great damage to himself and the world around him by thinking he can make that determination better than God can. So as we looked at last week, God's a good God, and he gives the man a naked woman, which is wonderful because it's not told that the man is alone. It is then implied in the text that it is the man's job to explain to his wife what God has then explained to him about life and death. This is also considered tov, the idea of a husband leading and taking care and nurturing for the welfare and the well-being of his family. So Genesis 3, it starts in shalom. Shalom is the Hebrew word for peace. But again, it's much deeper than peace. It means rightness of the world where everything that is meant to be good actually is good and accepted as good. And everything is in the right place, the right time, and the right way. Everything is tov. So God makes all things tov and shalom and peaceful and right and good. And when you look at the world today, it doesn't really look the same way. How did that all start? That's what we look at today. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Here we go. This is a long long intro, right? Yeah. Okay. 3-1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. So in this garden where God places the man and the woman and they reside by the grace of God, a new character is introduced into this narrative. He is described as a serpent. I think it's poetic and literal. A serpent has the ability to inflict sudden death. He is with, with the ability of his mouth, he can bite, he can paralyze, he can kill things. The venom that he injects does this. That perspective would not have been lost on the first readers of the book of Genesis. They would have saw that and said, oh, that's what a serpent does. It kills 
things. So the serpent is more crafty and shrewd and smarter than all the other creatures in creation. Today, that would include you and I. I know sometimes we think we're so small, smart. Oh, the devil's not smarter than me. I'm so smart. It just proves my point right there. All right, he's smarter than you are. But there's also one more vital point to understand. The serpent sees himself as being at war with God. He comes into creation in an attempt to get the man and the woman enlisted in this futile fight against God. And I love the way the ESV lists this in the word for translation. It says, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, in the NIV will say, did God really say? kind of misses the nuance. Let me ask you, is this what God actually said? No. No, someone in first service said yes, and I go, let's just clear it up right now. All right. <laughs> no, that's not what God actually said. But the serpent phrases the question in such a way that makes her question God. This is like little kids. Did your parents actually tell you this? Did your parents actually say, oh, did your mom and dad go on vacation and say you actually couldn't do that? That sounds just like a little kid. The serpent asks Eve the first question in human history. And what happens when he asks the question is Eve loses all focus on all the good things and focuses on the one thing she can't do. This is just like us. We are called to live in freedom, but we get so focused on the bad. We get so focused running around saying, oh, as Christians, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't. When God said, you focus on the life I called you to live, the life, the freedom, the joy, the grace, that's what you focus on. And so many Christians are so stuck in looking at all the things, don't, 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 and they live where the woman lived right there after her mind got changed. God said, you can eat from any tree in the garden. That's complete freedom. They can enjoy everything. They're simply instructed to trust God. God, that he knew what was tove in all things. So now she's drawn into this conversation with the snake, which in itself is a bit odd. I've never had one. You know, I'm not a parcel to, parcel tongue, whatever it's called. Oh, cultural reference right there. So she, she becomes focused on a tree with fruit that is forbidden. Uh, verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, You may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So what happens now is the woman, in an effort to correct the serpent, overstates what God actually said, much like a lot of Christians today. It's like, here's the Bible, here's the hamlet that goes along with it. Don't go to movies, don't drink, don't dance, uh, don't hang out with people who do. You know, and so we got all these things, oh, follow our hamlet. No, that is not. We are trying to overstate what God said. God said you live in freedom and joy and peace and goodness. Now, either she does this because her husband didn't explain it correctly, or she's just overzealous and trying to overstate God's case. Again, as many Christians do today, as we run around and protest and hold signs, do all kinds of crazy stuff, God never called us to do when he simply said, live your life so people know who I am, and they in turn will be led to who I am because you lift me up. This is how God calls us to live, to know the tov in all things. Now, what's most important to see is that in the end, the woman's mind has become open to this suggestion that God is overstringent, that God is overstrict in his commands. And if God isn't reasonably strict, then can he really know all that is good? Can he really know all that is tov? I so wish this spoke to our culture today. So out for left field, right? No, okay. The serpent has the woman exactly where he wants her. She's like a ball. It's placed on a tee, and he just winds up and Knocks her ignorance right out of the park. Verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you, sh- you will not surely die. Did God actually say you die? <gasps> you will not surely die, for God knows when you eat of it. Your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent calls God a liar and he pitches the woman her own self-actualization in God's place. You know what you want better than God. You know what you desire better than God. God can't actually tell you what is good for you. 
You were made in God's image. You're like him. You would be a better God than God. You know what you deserve. He's not a good God. He's me. He wants to deprive you of what you really want. What a terrible God that is. And a subtle change begins to take place in the woman where she starts to think the serpent is not so bad and God is not so good. Now, how many of us do the same thing? We think, oh, well, the Bible's outdated. Well, I don't got to listen to the things in the Scripture. I'm going to lie. I'll cheat. I'll shack up. I'll steal office pens from my office because they're cheaper than buying them on my own. I'll go figure those things. These are all lies. I mean, the serpent comes up to even any any sells her. You can be like God. Genesis 1, we are told that the man already was made in the image and likeness of God. He already was like God. It's like if you own a house and I show up to your front door and I go, ding dong, and you open the door and I go, hey, I'll sell you your house. Now, I own the house. No, not really. I'll sell your house again. You're like, okay. I mean, this is, this is how dumb this is. Now, the first week I showed you the hierarchy God sets up. It is God and man creation. Now, because the man and the woman believed the lie, the likeness to God was stained and marred beyond all recognition. The woman bought the line as we all do. So you cannot look at her and go, oh, she's so terrible. We do the same thing every single day in our lives. Verse 6, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. She sinned. She died. She became separated from life. She trusted someone other than God. And she also gave them to her husband who was with her and he ate and he died as well. And then all creation then becomes born into death because our first parents sin. 1 Corinthians 15.22 I'm going to leave it up here the rest of the message because I want you to see this. It says, for as in Adam, all die. For as in Adam, all die. See, the man was supposed to lead and protect his wife and explain to her all the tov that God had shown him, but he didn't. And now the ideal of shalom has been broken. All of creation loses the innocence and freedom that came from knowing only the good. Romans 8, 20 and 21, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Man's fall caused all of creation under his care to be subjected to man man's folly the text tells you that the woman gave some of this fruit the tree to her husband who was just standing right next to her apparently not doing much of anything he should have been like that is a talking snake (laughs) bam (laughs) that's what he should have done but he doesn't he just sits there oh look talking snake lets it goes up and talks up shit that's a lie shut your face you do not talk to my wife because you're a talking snake all right Instead, he does nothing. He does nothing. He fails his family, and he doesn't live up to the good that God called him to. Now, the next verse is key because what you see is what happened when they died, when they were separated from the good they were supposed to enjoy. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, at the end of chapter 2, when everything is good and right how it's supposed to be, it says the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, throughout the rest of the scriptures, whenever you see the words nakedness, it's always associated with exposure and shame. They were exposed. Their sin made them lose the innocence of their connection with each other and God. They became separated. They died. They will no longer know the beauty of innocence. This whole idea of tov that means they can actually lay before one another and never feel ashamed is actually gone. They have lost true life that comes from being in connection with the world around them and connection with God. And the saddest part comes next in verse 8 as it relates to us. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. 
They hide from God. They are separated from Him. He is the only one who could show them what is tov, and yet they run from Him. They are truly dead. Now, Adam, as the head of the human race, because he died, everybody after this is born into a life with a deep-rooted propensity to sin and seek what we think is the good and not what actually is good. The world becomes just lost in disarray because can't, man cannot know the good on his own apart from God revealing it to us. I mean, sin runs rampant in lives even to this day. It causes us to be separated from each other, our creator, eventually our own flesh. That is sin. That is death. You see, this is a story of the first funeral. And there is no pews and no pulpits and no caskets and no wood paneling, no plasma screen TVs, no three-piece suits. It is just death and separation. And if you read this, you know, before Christ came, you'd be thinking, is there any good news in this whatsoever? How can there be good news? Is there any way for God could restore a place where we can again know what is tov? I mean, the rest of Genesis 3, which you'll see next week, is God, as he walks through this garden in the cool of the day, this place of rebellion and death, he calls out to the man. You know, though the woman first disobeyed, he still calls to the responsible party. He calls out to the man and he cries, where are you? It is not that God can't see Adam hiding behind a tree or a bush trying to cover his baby-making parts. The point is that God came looking. He came looking for the man. Because the man can never find God on his own. So many times people say this, oh, I found Jesus, I found Jesus. No, you didn't. Jesus found you. We are the ones that are lost. We are the ones that run around in a forest, hiding behind trees and bushes, and God finds us. I mean, you may pray the prayer, Jesus, come into my life, forgive me my sins. That is Jesus finding you, finding us. Our God is on a rescue mission to redeem people from death. God made a promise in his holiness in Genesis 2. You sin, you die. It is that simple. We sin, we, we die. We deserve death. We deserve separation from life and love for eternity. Yet God provides a way for us to know the good again, a way for you and I to be connected and restore lost relationships. God provided Jesus to be the one that dies in our place as our substitution. On a cross, our God experienced separation. This is gigantic. All of our sins were placed upon Jesus. The Father has to look away. Jesus in Matthew 27, 46, Mark 15, 34, says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the most brutally painful moment in all of eternity, in all of creation, because the Father looks away from the Son, and God experiences separation for His people. Because of you, because of me, because of Adam. Our sin in thinking we know what is tov better than God. God's son had to die. God says, you sin, you die. Our God substitutes himself for us. See, what is taught throughout the scriptures is clear. Either you die forever separated from God for all eternity, or you trust in the provision of God through his son who dies for us. Your life for his death, or your death for his life, your sin for his righteousness. Martin Luther called this the great exchange, and it is a great exchange. The idea of regaining our, regaining our life is rooted in the idea of sacrifice, not our sacrifice, his sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it like this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is what the scriptures are all about. The glory of God, the redemption of man, and more importantly, the revealing of who Jesus Christ is. Because even though it's about our salvation, it's still about Jesus. God doesn't choose to save us because, because we're so good and wonderful or he needs to love somebody or he's lonely. He chooses to save us simply because he knows the tov and he is good. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die. You know how this verse ends? 
so also in Christ shall all be made alive. See, as an animal will die, that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is redemption, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. You and I today, just like in the garden, we do great damage to ourselves and the world around us by thinking we can make the determination better than God of what is good and what is not good. Man has essentially wrought death and separation. We have brought this death and separation to a place that was supposed to be good and then full of life. And we must learn how to sacrifice our desires and live and learn what God desires for us because we will never truly live until we lay down our lives, die to ourselves, gain the life that is found at the feet of Jesus. That as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You and I have been given this great gift that we can be alive again. That the separation that we want to cause every day in our lives is repaired and restored in the person of Jesus Christ. See, this is the reason why every week we do communion. People ask us, why do you communion every week? This is why. Communion is to remind us of his body that was broken for us. That's why you break that cracker. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. So that we can be a people who no longer live in death and separation. But we can actually be a people who live in life and hope and grace and restoration of all the freedom that God originally intended for his people. That is what God wants for us. Now the band's going to come up. They're going to do, actually, I'm going to do one less song at the beginning and put one extra one at the end so it's a little bit longer time in music this morning. Because I want you to think about that. I mean, if you are someone who believes and you're like, yeah, then take a few moments and just be humbled by the grace of God that he sought and saved us the way that he did. If you do not know Jesus, there are going to be some deacons and elders in the back of this room. And if you are tired of living in a place of separation and experiencing only death in your life, I want you to go and pray with them and talk to them about who Jesus is and what he has done and how your life can look completely different by the salvation that Jesus brings us as his people. Um, there's an offering box on the sidewall in the very back. We, we give because God gave so much to us, obviously, from what we looked at this morning. Giving is a part of our worship. That's why we don't pass a plate, because it should be a response to what God is doing in our lives, that we give as well. Uh, there's some food and stuff in the back, and the reason we put food in the back is, is not just because we're nice guys, although we are. You know, It's not just because that. It's because we want you guys to get to know other people. Because, yes, though God saves you, he never intends for that just to be you. He intends for that to be corporately, all of us together, living and walking where he calls us to. So we try and do that to give you some food, to talk to other people. Uh, if you, we'd love you to sign up for a gospel community, to, to be in a smaller group of, of Christians learning how to do life together. So if you'd like to sign up, do that. In the back, it's just the way that God calls us to live. Our God is good. Our God is good. And we in our lives so often are trying just to live in a place of death and separation. And God says, stop it. That is not where you're supposed to live. You are to live in life and grace and truth. God has bestowed great grace upon us. And we need to be those who live in that great grace as well. Uh, You're going to hear a recurring theme through most of these songs about God tearing the veil. Uh, You and I being able to enter into a place of worship with him. This is because for the longest time there was a, a curtain that separated the God's most holy place in the temple from everybody else. And when Jesus dies, that curtain is ripped from the top to the bottom. God rips that curtain so that not only we get to go in, but he goes out. And we interact with God in the most holy place of our hearts and our lives and how we live.
It's a great concept. So I'll pray, and we'll sing songs of worship. And then you'll go out of this room and live life and not separation. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I do thank you for being a God who is more gracious than we can ever imagine, who have taken lost and, and broken people and brought redemption and hope to us, that you had not left us in this place of hiding in the garden, but you have sought us out and you have saved us. And today, Father, we can say it is well with our soul because you have made it well with our soul. Not because of anything we did, not because we are so wonderful, but simply because you are good. Father, thank you for restoring relationship with us. Thank you for enabling us to have relationship with each other again. Teach us and convict us of where we live in places that are not tov, that are not good, and that we'd be those who long to live our lives in a place where we simply trust you for the good as you redeem us and restore us and lead us every single day. Open our hearts to hear you, to worship you in everything that we do so that your great name is lifted up and your people live in a humbleness that point directly to you and the great grace that you have given us. We thank you for being a God who sought us and saved us. Amen.